Welcome to Women in Science, a podcast series where we interview some inspiring women who are breaking barriers in their field and making remarkable contributions to research. I'm Dr. Kirsty Short, and in this episode, we meet UQ's Professor Peter Ashworth. This former primary school teacher is now a globally recognised expert in the fields of energy, communication, stakeholder engagement, and technology assessment. Hello and welcome to another episode of Women in Science. I'm joined today by Peter Ashworth, who's got a really remarkable story to tell us. And it's quite a diverse career that you've had. So, Peter, why don't you start by telling us where it all began for you, where you did your training and how your careers got you to where you are today? I'm going to say, where do, you, where do I start on that one? So, I, Start with your early years. Where, uh, What did you okay. like in high school and what were you thinking okay. after okay. high school? Interesting. So when I went through high school, I actually did most of the science subjects and I was actually enrolled in a Bachelor of Science at the University of WA because I grew up in Perth and I just decided, no, I didn't want to do that And at the time. So I actually worked for the public service for a couple of years. In those days, because many years ago, it was one of the things you did public service exams. My parents encouraged me to do that. And so I started out in Department of Agriculture, which was quite interesting. But I guess one of the things I took away there, because it was a long time ago, was how little work at that stage people did. And I thought I didn't want to do that. And actually went off travelling, became a nanny, worked over to Victoria for a while and really enjoyed that had some fantastic experiences working in rural Victoria and in Melbourne and then decided, well, you know, this is a pretty easy life. Maybe you should go get a qualification. And so I went back to Perth and did teaching and started out as a teacher, which was really quite fun. And and what were you teaching? I actually did primary school teaching, but started out teaching English to senior school because that was sort of in teaching ways you did a country posting or what have you and so I started there but then moved quickly into primary school which was fine but I found again I mean I was much younger then but I just felt you know you'd have a joke and it would go over their heads and I just thought this isn't for me and ended up moving into retail so I worked for Jeans West when Alistair Norwood was very early entrepreneurial days which was actually a really interesting thing now because the one thing I learned at Jeans West was how to sell. Hmm. They had this really strict sales thing that you always had to, you know, people were buying the jeans, you had to stitch the belt through when they came out of the change room and try and make multiple sales. And it was quite challenging. So when you next go to buy jeans in a shop like that, see if they ask you, do you, you, do you like the shirt? Do you like the belt? So this closing the sale sort of thing. And it's actually been really interesting for me because running retail businesses like that and being able to sell, I think, is an important part of selling your research. And Mm. so it's funny, you know, how these tangled webs went back to teaching and then ended up wanting to move out of WA and looked over. There was a job advertised by the body shop, skin and hair care. It was really early days, didn't really know much about body shop in Australia at that stage, but sort of went and found Anita Roddick's book, who was the founder, and read it and was really quite inspired by that. Was successful in the position, so I ended up becoming their sales trainer. And so that sort of started a whole new life, moved to Victoria, was quite successful in sort of changing the processes of how the shops went through selling and that sort of thing. So was asked to come up and be retail operations manager here in Queensland. 
So I was state manager. Anyway, I was quite successful in that role. But then my partner at the time, his mother died of breast cancer and she was Danish. And so we decided, hey, you know, she brought him up to be a proud Dane, even though he was born in Australia. Let's go back to Denmark because more more, granny was still alive. And we thought it'd be lovely to experience that culture. So you know, we were early 30s, not not young, leading. He was an architect, so we had pretty good executive positions, but we went, oh, what the hell, let's go. A lot of our friends sort of said, why would you do that? But it was such a fantastic experience. We spent six months traveling through Italy, studying Italian, and then landed in, in Copenhagen. And it was funny because in Italy, we were having a bit of a competition as to who could learn the language quickest and who would do that. When we got to Copenhagen, he just put his passport on the thing and spoke. And I was like, well, I'm never going to win in this country. <laughs> but it was quite interesting because, of course, Denmark's a beautiful place, but it is an interesting language, but they do speak English. And so I reached out to the body shop because that was really the only sort of skill that I thought of that might work. And actually Body Shop International had heard and knew of me from Australia and recommended they employ me. So... It was interesting going for the interview and they said, well, what will you do? So originally it's a franchise business, but they had five company stores. And I just said, well, I'll just put a little badge. I said, yeah, you're Australian. Yeah, you could tailor dance. But yeah, I got to Inksk and that's what we did. And so I'd go into the stores. So I became their retail operations manager, which was once again a fantastic opportunity because I got to travel to the Faroe Islands all around Denmark, was given a company car to go and do that. Wow. Um, so it was a really lovely experience, I guess. And I think from there, after 18 months, got a little bit sick of the, you know, wait for the green light. It's a very regimented line up for the bank, line up for the post office. And having come from Italy, it was a bit of a shock to the system. And both of us got a bit frustrated. So we were going to go back to Australia. And then I got a call from Body Shop in Ireland and said, well, actually, why don't you come work for us? And so after a bit of deliberation, went to, to Dublin that um, was had its own challenges because I wasn't married. I didn't have a passport, whereas in Denmark we were recognised as, as so all those different things. But anyway, I ended up being the general manager of, of Body Shop in Ireland. So I had an office above our major store in Grafton Street and again got to travel all around Ireland. So that was for a couple of years. And I guess from there, had my first child. She was born in Dublin. And that was sort of when we decided, and in actual fact, we decided after a year, originally I took the role for a year that we'd go home. Then I got pregnant and they said, we'll have you baby and all, please stay. So we stayed for a second year and then came back to Australia. And that's when I sort of started to think, well, what will I do next? And enrolled actually here at UQ to do an MBA. Very early on, I was doing that and I, there was a call went around saying can anyone do research assistant work and I thought oh, that'd be perfect I could do that I'm a mum I'm studying you know that could work quite nicely part-time and ended up working for the head of school Victor Callan on some projects and the first thing he said he said I need to understand creativity can you go and you know do a literature review for that so I went off to the university library and got all the Harvard business reviews and Teresa Armabile and went off to wordsmiths and was just literally reading, writing, summarising. I think, oh, my God, I'm getting paid. What a dream job. And that's really where my interest in research started. So so tell me a little bit more about your research career from there. How did it develop and what did you sort of go on and find a passion for? Yeah, so it's a good question. So I went through the MBA and I think because of my experience, obviously, I have a different approach to academia than others. And so 
I sort of, you know, would talk to everybody, which doesn't always happen in universities. There's different sort of things. Um, and so through that became pretty well known. And then they were setting up, Cindy Galwa was setting up the Centre for Social Research and Communication and they needed a manager. And Anne Pazarski, who was another lecturer in the business school, said, you know, you should get this girl. She would be fantastic. And so through, and then I was going, well, it was sort of towards the end of my MBA and I sort of thought, well, it's fine, but it's actually not really great salary. And so they said, well, how about you manage it for a couple of days and then you can do some research consulting on the projects that we win and, you know, manage the conflicts and away we go. So that was sort of how I started, I guess, into the research side of things. And one of the jobs that we brought in was when CSIRO was just setting up the Energy Transform flagship and they wanted to think about should they invest in carbon capture and storage as a new technology which had the potential to mitigate large amounts of CO2 but lots of perceived risks and so forth. So we, with my colleague Anne and Cindy, co-designed a sort of very small study and did some focus groups in across Queensland, here at UQ getting environmental students, blue collar, so different groups, went down to New South Wales to get some other opinions. And what came up was that the majority of people felt like this, if this is such an important technology with potential, then we have responsibility to investigate it because if we're exporting coal, we should clean it up for others and so forth. So there was a real justice thing that arose. Mm-hmm. So we gave those findings and I actually was really, you know, having my whole sustainability from body shop and things. I thought, you know, this is really interesting because at that stage, I think it was Friends of the Earth had just started to put some information, negative information. And I was thinking, well, how do you broker an honest debate around a technology before it gets shut down because of, you know, misinformation or opposition and so forth? And that's where I suppose my interest in science and technology really arose. So I went back to CSIRO and they had just started up a social and economic integration research program. And so we were invited to pitch to that. And so, you know, we scoped up what a, what a larger research looking around social acceptance and public attitudes to carbon capture and storage would be. And it was quite funny because through that, and they had at that stage the Centre for Low Emission Technology, which was an industry CSIRO partnership and we were assigned an industry mentor to help us develop this research program. It was all part of the Centre for Social Research and Communication. And I can remember having a conversation with one of the big engineers there from, I think it was from Rio Tinto at the time, John Davis. And after we talked through, he sort of said, well, Peter, when you present this, he said, if you do it well, I'll ask you a question and then you'll be fine. But if you don't, I'm not going to ask the question. No pressure. Yeah, no pressure at all. And so, you know, but I took it on board and it was really interesting because when I went into this room and this was, what was what year would it have been? Maybe 2005, okay? And it was the classic boardroom full of men, mm-hmm. myself and the girl taking notes on the side there, the, the EA to, to Kelly, who was the CEO at the time. And anyway, so did the presentation, John asked me the question so I thought great and there was a couple and we had a really good conversation about it because it was quite challenging for them you know social science approach to technology all of this to hardcore engineers and industry why would you bother and anyway left feeling quite happy walked outside and went oh my god I've left my handbag in there (laughs) (laughs) but it was so so I had to go back in while they had the next male presenter and sorry left my handbag I've never (laughs) forgotten it and I emailed the EA saying can you believe that and she wrote back said don't worry men are secretly afraid of what's in a woman's handbag so (laughs) (laughs) that's fantastic but how did you 
How did you feel sort of going into that boardroom knowing that there was a gender divide? And did you draw on maybe sort of the unique experience that you had working in sales, working in retail, talking to people across different boundaries and different disciplines and different backgrounds? Look, I think that's it. I'm always nervous when you start off, you know, with a large presentation. You always have that. But I've always told my students and everyone that anxiety, a little butterflies is actually because you care and that's okay. So, and then once you start talking about it, it's something you're passionate. So I guess I was a bit shocked. I wasn't, I hadn't actually even thought about who would be in the room except for these couple of people. And then when, you know, it was a massive boardroom where I ended up working out at QCAT at CSIRO. But so it was a little bit overwhelming to start with, but I think because I really believed in what we were doing and we had done the research and we had done our homework, so we were pretty well prepared. So then it was just, you know, this is, this is it. take it on, let's have the conversation. So, and I did have a couple of, so John obviously as a mentor, but also Kelly as the CEO thought this was really important. So, and there was actually people in that room who really was, could not see the value in it. Mm. But it was interesting as we started to deliver, they actually converted into how important the research was. So, so I guess it was just, I think being prepared and, you know, feeling that this is actually the right thing made it not so difficult, I guess. So tell me a little bit more about that next stage in your career. What happened after CSIRO and and, and how did you end up where you are today? So while I was at CSIRO, after that work, we ended up establishing a small group called Science into Society Group, which was all around that integration. It focused very much on energy and I think I had five researchers. But then Climate Adaptation Flagship started and so they needed the integration. If we were working in mitigation, it made sense. And over time... I think within five years, we grew from five to 30 and we were servicing every single flagship across CSIRO. And so I think what was powerful about that was we were very applied. And Cindy always says that we were probably ahead of the game when we talk about impact because we were doing very applied research. What do the public think about a new technology? You know, what is causing the contention when we try to take something to society and so forth? And sharing it back not only with scientists, but also industry and actually getting scientists to think early on about the unintended intended consequence of what they're doing. And I worked a lot with European Parliamentary Technology Assessment Group. So there's a lot going on in this area. And so that was all great. And I continued in the work and I have a strong interest, obviously, in sustainability and energy. And then I was actually in China running a workshop around carbon capture and doing some education with some students and things. And that was when Tony Abbott sort of talked about reducing the funding to climate change. And I just went, oh, my goodness, here I am in China talking about this stuff. And they asked the question of it. And anyway, I just decided it was actually a good time to go, okay, this is going to, and then there was going to be cuts to CSIRO. So I just went, you know what, this could be really stressful as the lead of these 30 people. And so I thought, actually, I'm going to put my hand up for a voluntary redundancy, which was great. And I sort of rang the deputy CEO and said, this is why I need it and why it's a good thing and so forth. And it was perfect for me because it meant I got paid some nice money to pay for my kids' schooling. But then UQ advertised a role as a chair in sustainable energy futures. I did a little bit of consulting and I thought that's a really fun role and I'd always imagined that I would end up back at UQ when I left CSIRO if the opportunity and so I applied for the position and was successful and so that was really how can we revamp this 
master of sustainable energy that you Hughes just inherited that was fledgling. And so that's really been my focus for the last few years. So build build the masters up to something that makes it stand alone and continue energy research and build literacy, which is what I've been working on. And we have got the masters now, I think that it's operating and you know not losing money. And we've got students from all around the world. And so more recently, the role for the director of the Liveris Academy for Innovation and Leadership was advertised. And I sort of thought, hmm, that's interesting. And so, you know, I was almost just looking because I was very happy. I'm very happy in doing the research around energy. And I think there's so much more to solve in that issue. But I applied for the job and went through the whole six, you know, recruitment. And it was actually a really fabulous opportunity. And so now I'm, I'm directing the Liveris Academy. So I get to deal with some really smart young scholars. I'm so lucky to have access to Andrew Liveris, whose you know vision is actually quite incredible. And through him as well, getting access to world CEOs and chair people of top Fortune 500. So it's a pretty exciting space. So again, here we are now trying to influence, you know, if you think about activism, this is the way of how do we shape these great minds to think about and to lead in the future. And I think the one thing, you know, which has been shown in this pandemic, Andrew Singh, was leadership under uncertainty Mm -hmm. and also to develop political leaders that aren't afraid to make decisions. So it's a big challenge, but that's sort of where I'm at right now. Obviously, continuing my research around the energy side of things and, and you, know, towards below, you know, towards zero emissions and those sorts of things. But the big focus now is let's make this Leadership Academy successful. And as somebody who, who's come from what I'd say is sort of a, a non-traditional background to this field, have you ever felt that you missed out on something or do you feel that this diversity of experience is really your asset and your your selling point, so to speak. Uh, I don't think I've missed out. I think it is an asset. I think I I think I often shock people. <laughs> you know, she's a mad Pete that's coming or what have you. Because I do have a different approach. I think those years at Body Shop were invaluable because it was all about values um, and. I mean, Anita Roddick was such an activist and we mm. all were in the way that we approached. And so that's all about having a voice, which I think science is in a way. And I think that's where I I'm, can add value to the science field is actually trying to help this translation or unpick people's opposition at the other side. So I don't think I've really felt that I've missed out. You know, there's one thing that I still would love to do is really study history because obviously I've done science and then all this, you know, it's an area that fascinates me. So that would be more... You've got like six lifetimes worth of things you want to do in one lifetime. (laughs) That's it. And I guess that's the other thing that I was never afraid to move. I've never been. And I get, you know, I I can remember when I started in Body Shop and I said, look, I get bored really easily. And that's something I've learned. And so that's when they said, well, how about we send you to WA and you can do some troubleshooting for a little while, so forth. Yeah. Yeah, I think there's about six episodes of podcasts in this story as well. But I think we have to jump to our quick fire questions. Could you tell us which woman or which women have inspired you and been the biggest influence in your life? Mm. So obviously Anita Roddick would be one because of the way that she had a values-led business in her approach, I suppose, and that whole commitment to sustainability and she acted it out every day. My mother, I think, because founding values, making, you know, giving us, we grew up in country WA, but sort of giving you making sure we're educated and bold enough to say you can do whatever you like. So I think that's important as a female pushing you. I mean, my father too, but as a woman. And then I think 
I have to mention Emeritus Professor Cindy Gawa. I mean, I started working for her way back, but she has been such a fabulous mentor. And even to this day, you know, we will have a coffee and she'll challenge me or she'll help me in my pitch or whatever. So in different ways, mm-hmm. they're probably ones that really come to mind first. And in terms of the situation that women face today, do you think that we have different obstacles in our careers, more obstacles because they're more subtle. How do you think it's changed to, say, 20 years ago? It's big questions. We ask the big questions on this yeah, podcast. Yeah, for the last bit. So I think, I think there's definitely improvements, but I still think there's this, you know, still ob- obstacles around expectations that, you know, we hear there's still this expectation that women tend to do most of the housework mothering and so forth there's a book called mother guilt and I think that's something that we all suffer I mean I was a single mum and the challenges of that I always remember being asked to go to a a meeting in Canberra and I said can I do it remotely and they said no 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 you know and I was like oh because the the knock-on effect of trying to manage children and things was Mm. huge and I always remember again the EA going oh Peter you shouldn't worry because this guy his wife packs his underpants (laughs) (laughs) so I think it's still there in different ways I think What's wonderful is the awareness is growing and there, there's multiple genders thinking around that sort of thing. So, but And it, maybe post-pandemic people will be a lot more flexible with that sort of idea of remote working. Well, yes, but it will be interesting, again, as to how the roles fall out, I think. so. Very um, much so. And just finally, what's the best piece of advice that you've received or what's the one piece of advice you'd like to give the next generation of women in science? So it's one that I draw on from Anita because I was fortunate enough to have her with me once a couple of times in Denmark and in Ireland and so forth. And and I noticed also the Dalai Lama, so I'm not sure where it came from. But this idea that she says, if you think you're too small to make a difference, you haven't been to bed with a mosquito. So I try to share that to encourage people to have the voice and to not be afraid because, you know, to question it's actually okay. And I guess that sort of level of activism is what's really inspired me whether it's standing outside Shell protesting when I was at the body shop or actually at the International Energy Agency sitting next to the CEO of Shell and sharing my research on public attitudes to carbon capture. So you can advocate in so many yeah, ways. Yeah, activism in, in all its different yeah, forms there. Yeah. Well, thank you so much for your time today, Peter. I really enjoyed our talk and I really enjoyed looking forward to what you're up to next. Okay, thanks for having me. Thanks for listening to the Women in Science podcast. In our next episode, we meet Professor Avril Robertson. If you enjoyed this podcast, please make sure that you like and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. This podcast was produced by Dr. Marlou Stecker, Dr. Marina Fortes, Belinda McDougall, and Matt Taylor. Technical production was by Daniel Seed. I'm Dr. Kirsty Short, and thank you for listening. <laughs>